0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
2: Now from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson show with Guy Benson.
0: It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson in New York City for the rest of the week. Thank you very much for tuning into The Guy Benson Show every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you can't listen live as we air, we have a podcast. It is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. Everything you need right there. You can also follow us on social media for some extra content as well. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I write there every day. I'm also a Fox News contributor. And this evening, I will be sitting in for Kennedy on Fox Business Network. That's the 7 p.m. hour Eastern. We've got a great show cooking for you on the TV side. And I'll be in the big chair, keeping it warm for Kennedy just tonight. FBN 7 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. A lot more television here in New York through Monday of next week. We'll bring you all of those programming notes as appropriate. Over the next couple of days, here's our lineup in store for you on the radio. Coming up later this hour, Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas. He's on his way out. He's retiring from Congress at the end of this Congress, but he's got a lot of work still to do in the current session. And we want to talk to him about inflation, the Fed's move today, hiking interest rates again, and the Biden team embarrassing themselves with a tweet. So counterproductive that they had to delete it. Has to do with inflation. We'll get to all of that with Congressman Brady. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Republican, he has been very active on the campaign trail for Republicans across the country this cycle, especially in bluer states. Of course, he famously won twice statewide in a very blue state. We'll ask him what he's seeing and feeling about the midterm elections, which are only six days away. U.S. Senator Tom Cotton will also be here, in fact, physically here, in studio, right in that chair that I'm pointing to that you can't see because it's radio. Unless you're watching on Fox Nation, then you can. Tom Cotton out with a new book this week, Only the Strong, plus his thoughts on the midterm cycle as well. He's been very, very engaged in a number of races across the map. We'll get his take on that. And then Josh Krasauer, I think one of the best in the business, when it comes to political analysis and reporting and actually really having a handle on things, not wish casting, just telling it like it is based on data on the ground, shoe leather, good sources on both sides of the aisle. There's a reason why we have Josh Kaye on this show weekly in the lead up to elections is because he's very sharp, very smart and very fair. So Brady, Christie, Cotton and Krasauer all ahead on today's show. I have to tell you, I've been a little bit mystified. Oh, well, look, I'm often mystified by Joe Biden and the operation around him, including his vice president. But I'm particularly mystified by some of the decisions that they're making this week. President Biden was in Florida yesterday where he has said a lot of things. We have perhaps we'll get to those later if we have time and maybe the next segment Said a lot of things that were confusing and were factually wrong. Why they sent him to Florida right before the Republicans are about to absolutely crush the Democrats in that state is beyond me. In fact, they sent him to South Florida. It looks like a day or two before Republican registrants are going to overtake Democratic registrants in the early vote in Miami-Dade County which Republicans haven't won in decades. Hillary Clinton won Miami-Dade, carried it by 30 points, even though she lost the state. And it seems like the Republicans have a very good chance of winning that county this year. And they sent Biden down there. He is not popular in Florida. Then he flew back from Florida, and he's giving a speech tonight in Washington, D.C., another primetime speech on democracy. Now, am I mistaken or did he not do this already? Philadelphia, Independence Hall, blood red lighting, the Marines behind him, big speech on democracy and the threats and all of that. I said at the time I didn't disagree with some of the substance of what he said in that speech. I thought the tone and the optics were not appropriate for a non-campaign speech, which is what it was. And what maybe what it didn't take? Speech wasn't dramatic enough, so he's doing another one. Like, hey, it's a do-over. It's like a kid in elementary school. D.O., I need a D.O. So we're going to try again. President Biden with a democracy speech tonight. You look at polling, the number one issue in the country is the economy and inflation. By far. The new CNN poll, which has Republicans now in the lead, by four points on the generic ballot. They asked about issue importance. Economy inflation is number one, a majority, 51%. Abortion is down at 15%. It's not even close. Democrats have spent 10x on abortion compared to inflation and in the economy and their advertising and messaging. Ten times the amount of money on abortion than what voters care about the most. And they wonder why they're in the pickle that they're in, it looks like, politically. Another top issue for the American voter is crime. Democracy is like a top five issue for Democrats. It is down on the list for most other voters, and yet that is what the president and his team have decided to send him back out, trot him back out there for another teleprompter speech six days out from an election. And the thing that is also like the piece de resistance, the chef's kiss, detail of this speech he's going to give tonight is he's giving it at union station in dc where he used to spend a lot of time when he would do all that commuting back and forth on the train the amtrak which he talked about incessantly he spent a lot of time at union station heading to and from delaware i wonder if he's been in union station in a while it has changed it has changed a lot since the pandemic the Washington Post described it this way, quote, Union Station has struggled to recover following pandemic-related shutdowns with many of its storefronts shuttered amid falling passenger counts and rising concerns over insecurity. Starbucks closed its store over the summer, citing public safety. That's the Washington Post. I've talked about that. I pass through this station regularly on my way up to New York like I did yesterday. It is a shell of its former self. Homeless people all over the place, homeless encampments right out front. What used to be bustling storefronts on all three levels, a lot of it's just gone, just like hollowed out ghost town. You want to get a coffee? You can't go to Starbucks. That was closed because of the crime. And what's amazing to me, again, to drive this home, you have the president six days out from an election giving a speech that I'm sure will get carried at least on some of the networks. Focused on the issue of democracy and the supposed threats there, too. I saw the White House spokeswoman, Corinne Jean-Pierre, was talking about how dangerous it is to deny elections. Very dangerous to democracy. Of course, she's done that. She called Trump's election a stolen election. She said that the Republicans stole the 2018 governor race from Stacey Abrams. She's an election denier conspiracy theorist. And then she became Joe Biden's spokeswoman, where she has to read and recite these talking points. And I guess just don't apply to her. But Biden is going to talk about democracy yet again, less than a week out from the election. And he's going to do so in a building that is currently, sadly, a monument to economic decline and crime, which are actually things that Americans care about. And he's not talking about those things. His theme is democracy. I mean, it feels like a metaphor that maybe they didn't think through very hard. But we did. In fact, we have deployed our colleague Wyatt, D.C.-based assistant producer here at the Guy Benson Show. Our studio, Tony Snow Studios at Fox D.C., Fox News Channel, our bureau down there, it is just steps from Union Station. Wyatt lives in that neck of the woods. And there's crime all the time, shootings, carjackings. D.C. City Council is actually voting this week, I saw, to lessen criminal penalties for carjackings, which is just, I don't know what to call it other than insane. This is even being debated. But we sent Wyatt to Union Station just to give us the lay of the land. Wyatt, are you with us?
3: Good afternoon, Guy. Yes, I am. I'm standing right outside of Union Station right now.
0: Now, are there any noticeable changes ahead of the president's arrival and address tonight?
3: Yeah, guys, so I'm I'm standing right outside um, Union Station, and it seems like they've done a little bit of a cleanup job. It seems like they've cut the lawn, which is usually covered in, well, as you said, tent cities of homeless people and garbage and, and stuff like that. Um, Wait, are the tents gone?
0: It, Have they cleared out the homeless people?
3: There are still remnants of, of some homeless people, but the tents are mostly all gone. I don't see any, any tents out here right now hmm. because usually across the whole front, face of of Union Station, there's just tents everywhere.
0: So they've, I guess, needed to change some of those optics. I wonder if Biden even is aware of how much things have changed just in the last couple of years. Wyatt, inside Union Station, I know you've been through there as well. Just try to explain to the audience how things have changed just in terms of, you know, the, the, the storefronts. There's that lower level where there's a food court, then there's the main level where you have all the trains and the waiting areas, but a bunch of stores and shops and restaurants. And then there's an upper level as well. What are those looking like these days?
3: Yeah, I think you said it's it's like a hollowed out ghost town, and I think that describes it pretty well. I mean, the three levels, as you said, mostly are all empty. There's the food court on the bottom level, which plenty of stores have, have ceased to exist since the pandemic. And the main level, which is used for most of the trains and buses is is you know there are a lot of homeless people and mentally disturbed people who walk around there during the day and and sometimes sleep in there at night and it gets scary i mean i've taken the train, I know you've taken the train up and forth from new uh, new York and i mean it's it's just not what it used to be because there's less foot traffic and more crime
0: well, it's kind of incredible on that lower level, the food court just uh, don't quote me exactly on this, but like Not that long ago, there were maybe a dozen or 15 different restaurants down there that you could choose from, you know, to go and order a sandwich or what have you. That is down at least 70 or 80 percent. There's a few still left. Most of them are just gone. It's just empty, empty areas that just have no business there at all. On the main level, where you have the most foot traffic, I'm still amazed how few, Businesses are open there where you would have people like waiting for trains, wanting to spend money. It's maybe like 40 percent shuttered on that main level, at least as far as I can remember. Then the upper level, I saw some photographs. I've not been up there in years. Just empty storefronts, closed doors. As far as the eye can see, there might be a still uh, a couple businesses operating up there. But I mean, it is it is very different. And why quickly on the issue of crime, you live right in that neighborhood What is that like on a daily or weekly basis, stuff that you see in the police blotter, stuff that you witness or you hear about in the building and occasionally even literally hear with your own ears?
3: Yeah, Guy, I mean, I walk past Union Station to get to and from work almost every day. And, I mean, the crime just in these past few months has gotten so bad. I mean, there's shootings. There was a stabbing the other day, which is something you don't really hear a lot about here in D.C. It's, that's more of a New York thing for some reason. But, I mean, it, there is a, a major incident just about every other week. And, I mean, it's scary. You know, walking home at night, you definitely don't want to be at Union Station at night. You want to stay there more in the daylight hours because there's at least more people in foot traffic. But, I mean, just over these past few few months and weeks, I mean, things have gotten significantly, significantly worse.
0: Yep. And this is the rail hub in the capital city of the United States of America. And it's now so dangerous that Starbucks won't operate the store there anymore. That's just like one little vignette. And we told you about it here on the show and the White House, the brain trust over in the Biden administration, they've decided that right before the election, they're going to send the president to the location Wyatt was just describing to give a speech about the threats to democracy, which whatever you think about it is not near the top five for most Americans, nowhere near. And he's going to do it in a place that is almost like a billboard of failure on the economy and on crime, which people do prioritize heading into election day, but that's not what he's talking about. It is, well, it's a choice. It is very much a choice that this team is making, and we'll see how that goes for them tonight and next week. Wyatt, thanks for your update on the ground at Union Station in Washington, D.C. As I mentioned, the president was in Florida yesterday. He uncorked some doozies. We'll try to unpack a few of those when we come back on The Guy Benson Show.
4: That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services.
5: Well, does anybody think if we're doing it for the first time now in the 21st century, going into the 20s, from the 20th century going into the second quarter of the 21st century, that we'd say 12 years is enough. Think twelve years enough, and in going into twenty, thirty, forty,
0: fifty. Well said, Mr. President. As always, I'm Guy Benson. That was Joe Biden in Florida yesterday. He was struggling in a number of ways. He was actually talking to an audience at a historically black college and university (HBCU). And at one point, as he always does, he tried to ingratiate himself with an audience by claiming some connection to it. He said that he's basically Puerto Rican or like raised in the Puerto Rican community. He said that at one point, he said something similar about the Jewish community. It's like, he's not going to pretend that he went to an HBCU, is he? Yeah, kind of cut 24. I'm a big fan of HBCUs. I got my start at one of those other HBCUs,
5: Delaware state university.
0: A number of people said, well, actually he went to university of Delaware. Not Delaware State. He said, I got my start there. People are trying to figure out what he meant by that. Maybe someone can follow up. There are a few other ones along the way. And I'm not even getting to like the whoppers that he told politically. I'm just saying like the, the biographical stuff. Including this one, which he just keeps coming back to. Cut 28. Well, wait here to the end of this cut.
5: Inflation is a worldwide problem right now of a war in Iraq and the impact on oil and what Russia's doing. I mean, excuse me, the war in, in Ukraine. And uh, I think of Iraq because that's when my son died. The, uh, because he died.
0: So is this like the third or fourth time he's claimed that his son Bo died in Iraq, which he didn't? He confuses the war in Iraq with the war in Ukraine. He says the wrong country. Then he catches himself And then in order to cover for it, he explains, oh, well, I had a rock on my mind because, quote, that's where my son died. And then he said because he died, which I think is his then effort to clean up what he just said by attributing the cause of death to something that happened in Iraq, the burn pits or whatever, which actually also isn't established as a fact. But time and again, Biden has said that his son died in Iraq. In fact, he died years after he returned from Iraq, from cancer at a VA hospital, if memory serves. It's a very, very weird thing for him to keep saying. It is a fabrication, and it's not a one-time thing either. We will continue to cover the president. We will keep an eye on his speech tonight. When we come back, let's unpack some of his rhetoric and policies and claims on the economy with congressman kevin brady of texas who is joining me next stay with us
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, podcast free every day. Joining us now is Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. Congressman, welcome back to the show.
5: Guy, thanks for having me. Hope you're doing well.
0: Doing well. You are that ranking member on that powerful committee, but not for all that much longer. You're retiring after this term. I know you and I have talked about it before with all the excitement around the elections and the likelihood of a Republican majority coming in. Any second thoughts about it, or are you eager to get out the door?
5: (laughs) You know, I still got 26 years. I still love my job in Congress. It's the people I work with. I'm I'm really optimistic, frankly, about the future of the country. It's going to swing back the right direction in, in a week. Or so. so I'm happy about that. And I'm also really optimistic about who is who is leading and on the Ways and Means Committee. The Republican commitment to America agenda is exactly what the country needs. So it's mixed feelings. You know, it's been a great run. I've loved it. But uh, you, know, you always know when it's time. And, and I'm excited about who's stepping in.
0: Earlier today, the Fed announcing another rate hike trying to combat inflation that has just been persistent and painful now. Month after month after month, the market's reacting. I see the Dow is down over 400 points right now. Your reaction to this move by the Fed and what comes next?
5: Well, I think I think they have to do this. This is no time to go wobbly. And look, they they got a bad. bad they helped deal themselves a bad uh, uh, hand of cards by supporting President Biden's you know government spending and giveaways. This has driven inflation. You know, to to a record high, and we're nowhere near the peak yet. Many many economists think we won't peak till next summer, even though the president told us it was last year. So they have to keep uh, uh, raising these rates. I think they'll have to go probably to five percent on the federal fund rate next year, somewhere in that first or second quarter. Uh, I get the impression uh, they're going to get to that level and wait and see. You know exactly what that impact is. But uh, the other worry here is, as cruel as the Biden economy is, some believe that America will have to shed 6 million jobs to get inflation down to where it was before President Biden took office. So that's a, that's a very harsh recession. I hope that's not the case, but it certainly appears that way.
0: Do you think a double-dip recession then is likely, it sounds like? You know, I think this one is,
5: you know, I think technically – We may be out of it for a little ways right now, but there's no question 2022, our economy will have shrunk. 2023, our economy will have shrunk further. So this president took a very strong recovery in what should have been a record year uh, in growth and just bungled it all. I've never honestly seen a president so quickly and thoroughly wreck an economy as Joe Biden has.
0: President gave a speech earlier this week. We didn 't even pay attention to it i mean he's they're out there throwing chum in the water, desperate for anything. I know he's giving another democracy speech. He did it already, but he's doing another one tonight. Uh, something else earlier in the week that I was just getting to is his Jeremiah ad against the energy companies and the oil companies and talking about profits and windfall taxes and all of it demonizing. The oil companies, he's done that to them. He's done it to gas station owners, mom-and-pop gas stations as well, saying it's really their greed that's causing all the pain at the pump, and there needs to be accountability, and let's tax them. I mean, it seems totally economically illiterate to me. Even Larry Summers, a top Democratic economist, said, no, this this would not, what, what they're proposing would not have the desired effect. It would make things worse. But... I think it's political flailing that we're hearing from the White House, but still, on substance, I wonder if you want to react to it.
5: Yeah, it is. It is desperation. I think to your point, it is economically illiterate. No question about. It. You know, there's no faster way than to drive prices up and and make America more dependent on foreign country foreign oil than to just, to to do this windfall process that discourages investment right here in the U.S. for production refining you know, getting it through the pipelines, getting it back out to the community affordably. So the president, as you know, has bungled the energy uh, issue so badly and people are paying crushing prices for this would make it worse. It's just, again, I I think you you were spot on, are spot on. It's just a political ploy because they're desperate uh, uh, about the election next week.
0: Congressman, I don't know if you saw, it's just like a little online thing, but did you hear about the official White House Twitter account? deleting a tweet about a so-called achievement by the president. I'm not not sure if you've seen this story, so I'll explain it to you. And I think it's worthwhile and newsworthy because it's a window into the way that they think and how embarrassing it is, so much so that they ended up having to take down what they put out there because it was such a self-own. So the White House tweeted this yesterday. Seniors are getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks in 10 years through President Biden's leadership. And immediately people started pointing out that the cost of living adjustment is actually a law that was signed decades ago by President Nixon. It has nothing to do with Joe Biden's leadership at all. But the fact that they need such a big COLA or cost of living increase is because of the terrible inflation. I mean, it's just like a a really mind-bending thing to think you can brag about. They tried. It was so humiliating that they took it down. But I think that little episode is revealing, don't you?
5: Yeah, it really is. Look, there's so much disinformation. And I think fear-mongering coming out of the White House. And I think everyone understands why Social Security had to go up because inflation is crushing so many seniors. And that doesn't count. You know, seniors with retirement nest eggs have seen that. Shrink by almost a quarter this past year, on top of the prices. So seniors are just getting crushed under this president. But you're seeing a lot of this: the fear mongering that Republicans are going to harm Social Security, Medicare. Fact checked, is absolutely false. The economy is strong. It's not. The border is secure. It is. Uh, it is not. Uh, uh, tax cuts are inflationary. It. It, it is not. All, all of this is, I think, focused. Not just on the election. I worry that disinformation is really targeting seniors to make them fearful and in communities of color. That seems to be who they think, you know, uh, will buy these lines. But but they aren't. People are smart and they understand what's going on.
0: Well, I saw Hillary Clinton disagree. She gave an interview with Joy Reid, famously a conspiracy theorist. Joy Reid is Hillary Clinton, who's still one of the top Democratic surrogates out there as she's going to be campaigning for Kathy Hochul in New York. She said that the American people just don't understand the stakes of this election, which is just yet another incredibly arrogant, condescending thing said about voters by this same woman. I I hope she gives more interviews, frankly.
5: Yeah, uh, this is her attitude. It's why she's not president, one of many reasons why she is not in the White House today. And there is this this belief from her and many Democrats, I think, in Washington that the American public is, is dumb that they need to rely on them, you know, to guide this country. Uh, And and remember, this is the same uh, former Secretary of State who is still an election denier about President Trump, continues to call him an illegitimate president who sold the election, and there seems to be no consequences for for her behavior there.
0: Finally, Congressman, as we mentioned at the top of the interview, you are not seeking re-election. You are heading for the exits. You are retiring after this current term. But, of course, the show goes on. Elections churn forward. There's been a lot of change in your state of Texas where Democrats seemed increasingly confident in recent years that eventually, just demographically, it would inevitably turn blue. And then a funny thing happened with Hispanics going in the other direction, which I think is freaking the Democrats out right now. Some different cross-currents playing out in Texas politics what are you seeing on the ground? What do you expect to happen in Texas next week? And we asked Carl Rove this yesterday, another Texan, about Governor Abbott statewide. Some polls have an up in the high single digits. I saw a poll the other day has him up 12 or 13 points. If I gave you an over under 10 points for Greg Abbott on Election Day against Robert Francis O'Rourke, what would your bet be?
5: You know, probably I would probably go right at the 10 Uh uh, for Governor Abbott, the truth of the matter is, guy, despite what Democrats are saying we Texas is not turning blue we 're not even turning purple. our statewide races win by between eight and eleven points, and now, especially on the border, I think there's a likely chance Republicans will sweep all three key border elections uh, for Congress, which means the this majority minority state uh, you know now led uh, by hispanics um, uh, in population, there will be likely more Republican Hispanic members of Congress representing Texas than Democrat Hispanics representing Texas. This is a sea change. And I think it all comes about because the arrogance of Democrats that you would take Hispanics for, for granted, they don't secure the borders, they don't care about the cultural issues or the economic issues that matter to Hispanics in, in, in Texas.
0: Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas For now, the top Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. And Congressman, perhaps we'll catch up with you during the lame duck. If not, just want to wish you a very happy and long retirement and happy trails to you. We've always always appreciated you coming on this show. And if we don't get another chance to chat before you head off back to Texas into the sunset to enjoy your life, I just want to uh, extend our gratitude and appreciation here at this show.
5: Guy, thank you. You're one of my favorite shows. I love being on, and you're terrific. So let's try to make it happen before I leave, because there's still a lot going on in the lame duck.
0: That sounds good. We will make it a point to try to do that. Kevin Brady of Texas, GOP Congressman, on The Guy Benson Show. More coming up after this break.
2: Guy Benson will be right back.
6: You have voted with your party, your critics say, 100% of the time. So, you may push for those things, as Senator Manchin has, but your party overall is not there and is in control.
2: Look, we've got too much, too many politics happening.
0: It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. We had Brett Bayer on the show here yesterday previewing town hall event with the two Senate candidates in Ohio. J.D. Vance, the Republican. That was Tim Ryan. You just heard from there. Brett asking the question. That he's voted with his party 100% of the time. He said that's what critics allege. That's also what the record is. All right, 538, hardly a right-wing outfit, has a scorecard where they say, all right, how often did a legislator vote with the Joe Biden agenda? Tim Ryan, Ohio, 100%. He didn't even do one. He didn't even throw in one just to get his grade down to 99. Lockstep 100% of the time. But he's out there constantly saying, oh, I don't care what your politics are. Setting aside political differences it's because he doesn't want people to actually think too hard about his politics. He's not an independent. He's not a moderate. He is a down-the-line liberal progressive Democrat who does whatever Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden tell him to do every single time. So Bayer... Asks him the question, and his response is, look, we've got too many politics happening, whatever that means. I think he had too many politics happening in terms of his voting record. It's not political to point out what he has actually done, not what he says he would do, not talk about how, oh, you know, I'm really going to be this different kind of thinker. I'm not your average Democrat. Of course, he was singing a different tune on a lot of stuff when he was running for president. I saw Fox News has a story that Tim Ryan had pledged, I think in some questionnaire, that he would support sex reassignment surgery paid for by tax dollars for illegal immigrants. Oh, just your average blue-collar Midwestern guy who votes with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi 100% of the time. And you point that, I said, that's just too many politics happening there, Brett. He also got this question, Tim Ryan did. From a skeptical voter in Columbus last night on the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, cut 16.
1: Can you look me in the face and tell me that government expenditures on green energy subsidies through the Inflation Reduction Act that increase our national debt are in any way lessening my burden at the gas station and the grocery store?
2: I, I could not say that right now in the present moment.
0: Ah, the old Inflation Reduction Act, not really doing the influx, uh, the, influx, the reduction of inflation, which we know, uh, but we told you that. Everyone, even Bernie Sanders was admitting, and some of their economists were like, no, that's not what this is going to be. They took Green New Deal spending, slapped inflation reduction on it as the label, and here's a voter. Can you look me in the eye and tell me that this stuff that you voted for is reducing my costs at gas stations or at the grocery store? And he says no, which is the right answer, and that brings us to his judgment and its voting record yet again. Tim Ryan voted not only for that, but for all of the spending that has fueled this inflationary moment, this terribly inflationary moment including the nearly $2 trillion so-called rescue plan, which they, again, pretended was about COVID relief, but it was just a Christmas tree of other left-wing stuff. Trillions of dollars. Then the Inflation Reduction Act that doesn't reduce inflation. Hundreds of billions of more dollars on top of it. In fact, Tim Ryan and every single House Democrat under Pelosi, with one exception, all of the rest of them, including Tim Ryan and Val Demings and the rest of them, They all voted for Build Back Better, which would have been trillions more on top of what we have. It stopped in the Senate, thank God. It didn't become law. Biden was ready to sign it. He wanted to. The House Democrats walked the plank and they voted for it. If Tim Ryan had his way, based on his own voting record, we would have even more trillions of dollars floating around in this economy, making inflation even worse. So... That's how things went last night for Tim Ryan in Ohio. J.D. Vance, I think it was a friendlier crowd to him. Got a lot of applause lines. Fair tough questions on both sides. But Tim Ryan is trying to pretend that he is something that he is not in Ohio. I don't think Ohioans are being fooled by it. Saw another poll out today. Now J.D. Vance up by five. Mike DeWine, the Republican governor, up way bigger in that state. If you put the over-under at five points for me, J.D. Vance, I'd probably take the over. That's my guess, but we'll see. If Tim Ryan were actually the politician that he's pretending to be, maybe things would be closer, but ultimately, it's a facade. It's fake, and it's exposed by his own votes in Congress, which is a pesky little fact, or as he might say, too many politics happening. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the Pennsylvania Senate race, John Fetterman was on the local Fox affiliate in Philadelphia. They played him the soundbite from last week's debate, one of the really bad ones, on fracking, his huge flip-flop on fracking where he's lying about his record. Here's how he answered it, just a reminder, in Cut 11.
7: Uh, I I, I do support fracking, and I I don't—I don't—I support fracking. And I stand and I do support fracking.
0: So then yesterday, the anchor played him that clip of himself and then asked this question, listened to the question, and then the response from Fetterman cut 10.
6: Do you understand why people are now questioning your ability to be our senator from the state of Pennsylvania because of moments like that?
7: I I believe that, that my support of fracking has always been been one that uh, in in the past uh, was some of the
6: environmental uh, concerns.
0: The question was about his previous answer and people doubting his capacity to do the job and his responses on the underlying question of fracking, not the concerns about his health and the answer that he gave. And even that was a mess. I believe that my support of fracking has always been been One that in the past was some of the environmental concerns that is respectfully gibberish that doesn't address the flip flop on the issue itself and certainly doesn't respond to the actual question that was posed to him. Big race in Pennsylvania. Very, very close. Another hour coming up next. Chris Christie will be here.
2: Powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
0: Time now for a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Our middle of three here on the program. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. Catch me tonight on Kennedy. Please tune in. I'll be sitting in. Kennedy at 7 p.m. Eastern time throughout that whole hour and is on Fox Business Network tonight. Fox News alert. The Dow hemorrhaging points today, down 505 at the close, ending at 32,147, a reaction on the markets to the rate hike from the Fed that we talked about last hour with Congressman Brady. Joining us now is Chris Christie, the 55th governor of New Jersey author of the book, Republican Rescue. Governor, it's good to have you back here.
8: Great to be here, Guy. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with this. Just as I opened the show today, the White House and the political team over in the Biden administration, they've decided that the best use of the president's time today is to have him give another speech about democracy, this time at Union Station, which has become this sort of festering example of economic decline and danger, like physical danger because of crime. They're sending him there, and he's going to talk about democracy, which is not really at the very top of most voters' agenda. What do you make of those political moves?
8: Well, they're they're trying to hide him. You know, they he wants to go and do something, I'm sure. No campaign wants him because he's toxic. So they send him to probably one of the most Democratic, large D, pieces of real estate in America in the middle of the district of Columbia the home to government have him give a talk on something that is unlikely to either offend or move anyone and then get him safely back into the white house where he can cause no further harm at least at the moment
0: let's talk about a few races happening this cycle on either side of your state of new jersey let's start in pennsylvania I see there's a poll out today that has John Fetterman ahead. A few other polls have it tied. A few other polls have Oz, Dr. Oz, now leading in that race for U.S. Senate. We'll talk more about that later this hour and also next hour with Josh Krasauer. But based on what you are seeing, hearing, et cetera, I know you've been in Pennsylvania as well. What is your sense of that race right now? We're six days out.
8: And I'm going back again to Pennsylvania Tonight guy, to campaign. Look, I think... I think Dr. Oz will ultimately win this race. And I think the reason that it is as close as it is, is the horrific performance of the gubernatorial candidate at the top of the ticket. You know, you have a very close race for Senate in large part because you have Josh Shapiro, according to the polls, winning by anywhere from 12 to 15 points. So you're asking for a lot of crossover to happen between Josh Shapiro voters then over to Mehmet Oz. I think he'll win it, but I think it will be very close, and and if there's a reason why it's so close, it's going to be because of the horrific performance of the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania.
0: I mean, speaking of horrific performances, John Fetterman in that debate, I'm still kind of surprised that his team let him go out there and do that, and it's just like that combination of really just confirming concerns about his ability to do the job plus his absolutely Pathetic record and his radical positions on a whole host of issues. I'm amazed, I'm constantly astounded that that man has, you know, maybe a 50 50 coin flip chance of becoming a senator.
8: Well, look, you know, I found it fascinating when you heard the reviews of the debates, the debate the day after from unnamed uh, members of the Democratic uh, Party on Capitol Hill. What they kept saying was, um, his his team should have never let him go out there. Their position, I guess, being that the only way John Fetterman can win is if he continues to hide his severe medical condition from the voters of Pennsylvania and deceives them. Because if they could possibly see how he would perform, they would never vote for him. I mean, imagine the cynicism of that guy, that what you're urging – members of his team to do is to actively hide his condition and deceive the people of the commonwealth of pennsylvania in order to win a race um regardless of what then would lead the next six years to what kind of performance he would give in the senate representing the people of pennsylvania in the end i think that's why dr Oz will win but mastriano is certainly making it hard enough for him to do
0: all right to the other side of your state and new york We had Lee Zeldin here on the program yesterday. We talked to him. We've looked at some of the polls. Kathy Hochul is not acting like someone who is, uh, you know, sitting back and feeling like she's got this thing in the bag and the Democrats now coming in with all this 11th hour money on her behalf. Uh, We I remember you and I were texting late into the night last year in New Jersey with that race being much closer than a lot of people expected for Governor Phil Murphy barely hanging on in a way that a lot of the polling didn't pick up. Can some of that translate over into New York? What do you make of Hochul's performance, the crime issue? Is this real for Lee Zeldin? Could he do it? Sure,
8: I think he could. Look, here's, you know, what a lot of people will focus on, Guy, and I think analyze it the wrong way, is what happens to the five boroughs of New York City. I am confident that Lee Zeldin will do better in the five boroughs of New York City than Republicans are expected to do because of the crime issue. And I believe a lot of Democrats will stay home. They're not enthusiastic about Kathy Hochul. Some will vote for Lee Zeldin because of the crime issue. And independents will vote overwhelmingly in the city for Zeldin. The thing to watch, I think, on Tuesday night is how well does Zeldin perform upstate? Do we get the turnout upstate and the margins upstate? Because remember, Kathy Hochul is from Buffalo. And so she will get some vote in the Buffalo and the upstate region that normally um, candidates who aren't from upstate don't get. So what I'm going to be watching in the early returns on Tuesday night is, is Lee winning by enough? And by enough, I mean he probably needs to win upstate by seven or eight points. If he can win upstate by seven or eight points, I think he's got a chance to win the election.
0: Let's broaden it out to across the country. I know that you've been doing a lot of campaigning for a lot of candidates. You've been focusing at least somewhat on people running in purplish to blue states. You did it successfully statewide twice in New Jersey, winning in 09 and then 13 with a big, big win. What are you seeing on the ground? Who are you helping? Where have you been? And what's your sort of vibe check as you travel the country? What do you expect to happen next week?
8: Well, first of all, I want to make sure you're sitting down, Guy, because last week I was in Oregon. Um, Yes, a Republican in Oregon, because Christine Drazen, the gubernatorial candidate for the Republican Party, is an outstanding candidate. In all of the public polling right now, she is winning by two or three points, but winning in a three way race out there between two Democratic members of the state legislature. Um, She is smart, she is articulate. She's talking about the issues of crime and homelessness in Oregon, which are really affecting everybody across that state. I think she's got a legitimate chance to win um, next Tuesday. Um, In Nevada, Joe Lombardo, um, you know, I I always wonder whether or not he's the sheriff of Clark County, as you know. Uh, sheriff for Las Vegas. I I think governor might be a downstep for him for being the sheriff of Las Vegas, but he's made the choice. And I think Joe Lombardo has a very good chance of flipping that gubernatorial seat in Nevada. And I was also in Colorado for Joe O'Day. And I could tell you, he's running for the Senate against Michael Bennett. He flustered Bennett. I was there for the debate um, uh, guy. He flustered Bennett so badly in his closing statement that Bennett... Asked the moderator if he could restart the clock and start over. Uh, You know, this is a two-term senator who was so flustered by Joe O'Day's, you know, attacks on him and his record. Um, And that race is an inside. I think O'Day, the last poll I saw was O'Day down by two. So, you know, if we get some real momentum there, we could do it. And one other race I have to mention is Rhode Island. Alan Fung running in uh, the the congressional district, second congressional district there in Rhode Island. I really think Alan Fung is going to go to go to the House. And if he does, he'll be the first Republican from Rhode Island in over 40 years.
0: Yeah. You look at the northeastern part of the country, it seems like the Republicans are very much competitive in a number of different places. New Hampshire, maybe Maine. There's a seat in Connecticut that looks interesting. Rhode Island, as you mentioned, then there is at least a, a seat or two in Jersey that could be on the board six or seven in New York, I mean, that unto itself is interesting, right? It's sort of your neck of the woods and beyond.
8: Very interesting. And this is where our party has to go, Guy, if we want to win national elections again. We cannot completely give away the Northeast Parts of the Mountain West and parts of the Southwest. And so that's why it's great that you see Mark Ronchetti in New Mexico running such a hard race against the governor of New Mexico and trying to flip that seat. Paul Page in Maine trying to flip the governorship back there. You're going to win. I'm going to tell you now we will win at least three and maybe four new seats in New York um, on Tuesday night. And we could flip two in New Jersey. Tom Kane Jr. beating Tom Malinowski and Bob Healy beating Andy Kim. Those are two races to keep your eye on in New Jersey. Um, And look, we could win a seat in Maryland, Guy. Um, And so I look at these campaigns in all the places we just talked about. And what I'm feeling on the ground is that the failures of President Biden And the Democrats in Congress for going along with him on these policies that have created inflation, huge gas prices, crime in the streets and disrespect for law enforcement. People are saying this is not what we voted for in 2020. We've been hoodwinked and we're going to fix it.
0: Well, we only have to sort of pour over the data and stress out for the next six days because we will finally have actual results and outcomes next tuesday governor chris christie former governor of new jersey our guest on the guy benson show governor always great to talk to you we'll have you back soon
8: thank you guy great to talk to you
0: getting into some polling coming up on the guy benson show next I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. So we're seeing some interesting breaks in the polling. Some of the race specific, like race by race polling is still looking relatively okay for Democrats, especially on the Senate side. I saw one poll that had Adam Laxalt down a point in Nevada, although a few other new ones have him up five in Nevada. And John Ralston, who's a Nevada-based journalist who really knows his stuff, usually gives lots of bad tidings of bad news for Republicans in the early voting, singing a very different tune this cycle. It's looking a lot worse for Democrats. So do with that what you will. But at least one poll has Senator Cortez Masto slightly ahead. There's a new poll out of Pennsylvania, Monmouth, that has Fetterman up four points. Basically, no change after the debate. That's different from the Muhlenberg poll out yesterday that has it tied with Mm -hmm. Oz surging and a few other polls out in the last few days that have Oz edging out to a small lead in that race. But there's at least one new poll, plus the New York Times poll. So two that have Fetterman ahead, four to five points, in spite of everything, although the New York Times poll was mostly taken before that awful debate. So, if you kind of hop around to some of these races and you look at certain individual polls, you might say, all right, the Democrats are probably going to have kind of a difficult night six days from now, but they're in a pretty good position to at least limit the damage. And maybe, maybe they can hang on to the Senate too. Is that possible? Yes. Would I bet on it? Well, maybe not as firmly or not as confidently as some Democrats with wishful thinking might. Because if you look at the national polling, there has been a very clear movement. We've seen it now for a while in some of the national polls with the Republicans leading on the generic congressional ballot. We asked Tom Bevan about this earlier in the week on Monday. Where the real clear politics average has had Republicans leading now for weeks on average. And some on the left are saying, oh, that's a fake average because there's too many Republican polls in it. It's all skewed. We need some more nonpartisan media polls that we really trust. Now, I think they have no good reason to trust those polls. A lot of those polls have been quite inaccurate in recent cycles for a number of different reasons that we've talked about here, including response bias problems that even Nate Cohn is addressing and copping to in the New York Times. But if they want some more mainstream media polls, then they've got them. We've got the Quinnipiac poll out today that has Republicans now up four. And that's a swing of seven or eight points from their last poll. CNN, their last poll, had Democrats plus three on the generic ballot, The new one out today, Republicans plus four, seven-point swing. NPR and Marist, their last nationwide poll, Democrats plus three. Their latest numbers out this morning, Republicans now in the lead by as many points, three. A six-point swing. Are you sensing a pattern? It seems to me like a lot of these polls are finally course-correcting Now that we're inside a week to go, we had this narrative despite the money being spent, right? The telltale you would think money being spent statewide in places like Washington State and New York, Republicans coming into Biden plus 15 plus 20 districts, the prognosticators shifting a bunch of races toward the Republicans. You would think in that environment That the media narrative that it was a really close national race might die off. But because of some of the national polling and still some of these Senate polls, there is this counter story about what's going to happen next week. And not to be overly cynical about it, but the race has not shifted six to seven points in the span of a few weeks. It just hasn't. The fundamentals are what they are. And I think a lot of pollsters who were helping tell a story, I think in some cases trying to help mold the national story, they are coming back to reality because they know that there's going to be scrutiny of their final polling and they don't want to get embarrassed. And so we're seeing at the very end here, the tail end, when all the arguing and all the narrative shaping is basically over, now they're like, oh, well... Actually, come to think of it, in our final survey, with the final sample, actually the Republicans are up two to five points. And we've seen that in poll after poll after poll. And if the Republicans really are up two to five points nationally, it would be very, very difficult for Democrats to somehow thread a needle and win these contested Senate races. Like they're saying that they can in... New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and Nevada and Arizona and elsewhere, Georgia. Maybe they could. Maybe they can defy all of the political gravity. Maybe they can defy history. Maybe the generic ballot, which, by the way, is generally worse for Democrats in swing states. It's artificially high because of big population blue states and population centers. Maybe that will be truly divorced, as will Joe Biden's approval rating, as will the right track, wrong track number, all divorced from the Senate races. Or maybe not. And I'd be more inclined to vote not. We'll see what voters decide next week. We'll talk to Tom Cotton, U.S. Senator from Arkansas, about what he thinks next when he joins us in studio on The Guy Benson Show.
2: listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through the show, halfway through the week on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast, free every day. We're broadcasting from the world headquarters of Fox News in New York City. And joining us here in studio, a long way from home, is Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas, out with a brand new book, Only the Strong reversing the left's plot to sabotage American power. Senator, great to see you. Hey, good to see you, Guy. Thanks for having me on to discuss Only the Strong. You bet. Let's talk about the book. When did you decide to write it? What's the general thrust behind it?
7: You know, the, I really decided to write it right after the fiasco in Afghanistan last year. I had so many Arkansans asking me, how did how did this happen? How did we let a band of medieval savages beat us? Um, and as I reflected, it, it was also similar to the some of the other questions I've been getting in recent times, you know, how did we let BLM radicals riot in our streets and tear down statues of our heroes like Washington and Lincoln and Grant? Or how do we get to the point where we're allowing teachers unions to close our schools and then indoctrinate our kids with critical race theory and radical gender ideology? Um, most Americans sense, have a sense of decline in America, and, and one of the main themes of Only the Strong is that the sense of decline – it's not an accident. It's not bad luck for Democrats. It's decline by design, that America, that uh, the progressive left, going back to Woodrow Wilson, has been at best ambivalent about America, and therefore they're openly hostile to the sources of American power: a strong military, a free, prosperous economy, sovereign borders, and sovereignty uh, in the world. Uh, American energy production and things like that. So I wanted to lay out how we got to where we are, but also provide a roadmap for how we can restore American strength as well.
0: You, know, you mentioned the chaotic and deadly pull out of Afghanistan, and I think a lot of Americans were very disturbed by what they saw. The conventional wisdom is Americans don't really care that much about foreign policy. Maybe after a huge event like 9-11, that can be a dominant issue or the Iraq war. But for the most part, their focus on other things – That's probably true overall. However, if you look at the X, Y axis of the approval ratings and disapproval ratings of President Biden, they crossed into the negative for the very first time right at and because of the Afghanistan debacle and have never recovered. So people might argue that it's not top of mind for everyone, but I think deep down a lot of Americans in their bones were disgusted by what happened and understood that it mattered and that – was reflected onto the administration, or onto the president.
7: It's perhaps not top of mind, but it's always in the back of mind, kind of underlying all the doubts that Americans have about Joe Biden. You're right that his approval ratings crossed into negative territory during the Afghanistan fiasco, and they've never recovered. Um, you see this throughout our history, is that the American people, of course, like like any normal person, is focused on day-to-day concerns that are right in front of them. We have a lot of those right now, and a lot of them are the result of democratic policy failures. People can't afford to feed their families or put gas in their tank. Um, they're worried about kids going to the park and whether they'll be the victims of crimes or, or maybe be exposed to deadly drugs like fentanyl. Uh, what, how, what I explain, it only the strongest is this all gets back ultimately to democratic policy failures, that derive from their ambivalence and doubts about America. Um, and Americans want to see a, a strong, proud nation that is leading the world. You know, Throughout the Cold War, we always perceived ourselves as the leader of the free world. Now, the divisions are not as stark as they were in the Cold War, because you don't have the Warsaw Pact uh, and the Iron Curtain. But most Americans still are proud of our past, and they want our future to be strong and bright as well. And that means not only defending America's interests, but doing so in a way that is confident and assertive as well.
0: Afghanistan might have been that Rubicon event that we're talking about. I think another related concern that many Americans have, and you and I have briefly talked about this before, is the decline in the U.S. military's ability to recruit people, men and women, to fight on behalf of our country. There are a number of different factors, perhaps fueling this problem, but you've got a lot of people in and out of the military looking at the numbers and saying, this is not good. This is a problem. What do you see there?
7: Well, the main reason is that young men and women join our military because they want to learn how to kill the bad guys, It's not because they want to learn how to use the right pronouns. And uh, Democrats ha- have long had a, a, a kind of painful, difficult relationship with our military. I'd explain this in Only the Strong. It's especially been the case since the end of the Cold War with Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, perhaps not coincidentally three presidents who never served. Um, But they also just have doubts and they're skeptical about military leadership. You know, Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense to both... um, George Bush and Barack Obama pointed out that that George Bush, although he didn't always agree with the generals and sometimes overruled them, always seemed to appreciate his time with them. And he certainly respected them, whereas Barack Obama seemed to view it as a duty, uh, something that he had to do, um, and that he was always mistrustful of them. And no one was more so than uh, Joe Biden. As Bob Gates writes, as I recount, in Only the Strong – Um, Joe Biden subjected Barack Obama to Chinese water torture in his first year, as Bob Gates called it, about the decision in Afghanistan that Barack Obama faced. And you see this, too, in today's Congress. You know, so many of my peers in the Democratic Party insinuate that the military is full of sexual predators and racists and white nationalists when in reality um, the young men and women who join our military are our country's very best. You're much safer in our military than you are statistically on, say, a college campus. Uh, and, and, of course, the military screens out any kind of extremists you know the The Biden Department of Defense went on a witch hunt last year for so called racially motivated extremists. They turned up barely a hundred in a department with more than three million personnel, and most of those were just members of ordinary criminal street gangs um, and young american and women young American men and women who who see these things and who might be inclined to join the military. Um, or having second thoughts about it. And and frankly, it's not just people who are joining the military, it's people staying in. I I got a very sad message today from a friend of mine who is a total warrior, been in for 20 years, taught me a lot of what I know about surviving out in the field and leading soldiers because he had been prior enlisted when I met him at Fort Benning. And uh, he didn't get chosen for battalion command, and he's going to retire because he just thinks that he's not the kind of leader this Army wants right now.
0: Let's talk about the midterm elections coming up in six days. I keep puzzling over the question, will November 8th, 2022 look more like 2018 in reverse or 2014 again? And over the summer is maybe looking a little more like bizarre World 2018. Now it's closer in my mind to 2014, where things broke and broke hard toward the very end, including in your race, because I still see some of these Senate polls and I'm talking about it all show long. Where Democrats seem to be clinging on and maybe having an okay shot to hang on to the Senate. And I can't help but think of the 2014 cycle where, again, it was looking like maybe an underperformance by the Republicans on the Senate side. And then all hell broke loose, including your total blowout election, which was not anticipated in the polling. Refresh our memory on that. Um,
7: Yeah, so in 2014, I think most senators who were elected with me that year went through a cycle of news coverage out of Washington asking, you know, what was the matter with Tom Cotton? What's the matter with Joni Ernst? What's the matter with Cory Gardner, what's the matter with Dan Sullivan? Uh, and in the end, of course, we had a smashing victory. I think we picked up nine seats in the Senate. And I do expect this election next week is going to be more like 2014 than 2018. In fact, I, I sent some of those stories to our candidates around the country over the last few months to remind them that this same thing happened. Been with the, there Was- done that. the Washington media, yeah, trying to say that uh, they can spend – you know, eight hours in Pennsylvania and give you the exact answer of what's going wrong with Dr. Oz and why he can't win, when in reality, he's going to beat uh, John Fetterman handily, in my opinion. Uh, in the end, the simple facts are that Joe Biden is unpopular because the Democratic Party's policies are unpopular. And kind of as we've been talking about in, in this book, I'm with the strong, that it's the direct result of these Democratic policies. And no one can can conceal that. I mean, again, it's not like inflation just happened. We didn't have inflation when Joe Biden took office. Um, in fact, Joe Biden's pollster has said the worst message they have in yep. their polling is to run on their record. And
0: he keeps saying it. It's yeah. like, all right, good and, you know, go, there's a there was there's,
7: there's a story in The New York Times this week about um, about Democrats – engaging in recriminations. Maybe you call them precriminations, since it, the election hasn't actually happened about how they should have had a better message on the economy or a better message on crime. They should have talked so much about abortion or threats to democracy. Well, what would their message have been? Like, what is their economic message right. going to be? Like, it's we spent $5 costs. trillion and caused, you know, 13% inflation. Or, you know, we wanted to defund the police and in bail and let felons out of prison. What do you expect them to say? Like, any time a politician or a party tells you they have a message or a communications problem, what they ha- really have is a reality problem.
0: That's exactly and it. And
7: that's exactly what the Democrats have.
0: Last time you and I spoke was by phone. You were out in Colorado campaigning with Joe O'Day in that state. I know you're on the book tour now. Only the Strong is currently available, Tom Cotton's book, U.S. Senator from Arkansas. You've got a very busy schedule coming up back on the campaign trail. Where are you headed for whom?
7: Yes, I took a a brief hiatus from the campaign trail, but I've been all around the country. I've been in Iowa and Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Later this week for the final lap, I'm going to be with Tiffany Smiley in Washington State, who's going to win a great victory over failed career politician Patty Murray, Uh, with Adam Laxalt in Nevada, who's going to win back the Battle Born State over Kathy Cortez Masto, who's a total rubber stamp for Joe Biden, and then wrapping up the campaign swing with Blake Masters and Kerry Lake in Arizona, um, where Mark Kelly has been an absolute down-the-line rubber stamp for Joe Biden. All these states can do better than the senators they have, and I think they will do. So
0: you think the Republicans will win back the Senate?
7: We will win back the House and the Senate, uh, and I think it will win it back by comfortable margins.
0: All right, there you go. We'll see. We'll know very soon. Senator Tom Cotton, our guest, his brand-new book, Only the Strong, Reversing the left's plot to sabotage American power here in studio with us in New York. Senator, great to see you. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Guy. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Stay tuned.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad you're listening. Doing the show from New York City, where crime is a huge factor in a bunch of house races in this state, and even in the governor's race, which has gotten very, very close—much too close for comfort for the Democrats. We'll ask Josh Krasauer about that coming up in the next hour. Lee Zeldin, who we had on the show yesterday, Republican nominee for governor, he is closing hard on the issue of crime, and his closing argument. In a TV ad. It's a minute long spot, features an example of soft on crime policies resulting in the murder of an elderly woman. It's an absolutely heart wrenching story. And it's not just cherry picked as an outlier, it is part of a pattern that many New Yorkers and Americans, frankly, around the country are fed up about. This is part of that powerful final ad from the Zeldin campaign making the case against. Kathy Hochul cut nine.
5: So Victoria Affet had been arrested ten times. Five of those were uh, either assaults or assault with a weapon.
1: That woman was. <laughs> she was like a time bomb, a ticking time bomb.
5: Uh, she was released on a no bail uh, recognizance.
1: If Kathy Hochul were right here, I would tell her the story of what happened to my aunt and how brutal it was.
5: I hold her
2: responsible.
1: Kathy Hochul let my family down.
2: We need a governor who's going to do the right thing. We need Lee Zeldin.
1: We would be much safer with Lee Zeldin. Give
2: me a second. I would not want anybody to go through what
6: we went through.
0: I mean, it is a potent ad. It's a gut punch. It is one vignette of a familiar story playing out far too often. Kathy Hochul, the incumbent Democrat, he was not elected governor, of course. She's sort of this accidental governor. She has been very dismissive of the issue. In fact, she was barely talking about it at all. Her whole campaign for months has been January 6th and abortion, on a repeat. He said, "Uh uh-oh, seems like a lot of people are mad about this other stuff. Maybe I need to do something. But during their debate last week, being pressed on keeping dangerous people locked up, Hochul asked, incredulously, of Zeldin, I don't know why that's so important to you. And just sort of like wondering aloud. Zeldin here on the show yesterday, you can go back and catch the podcast if you missed it, he explained why it was so important to him. And so important to the families of people who have been harmed, maimed, or killed by dangerous people who should have never been out. And then in an interview... With Al Sharpton, of all people, on MSNBC, she said the crime spike, which is actually in New York City, absolutely backed up and fortified by the data. You look at 2019 pre-pandemic versus now, significant surges in all sorts of categories of crime, particularly in New York City. But Kathy Hochul's like, oh, that's not really real. That's data denial, what the Republicans are talking about. It's a conspiracy conspiracy. Those are terms she chose to use, data denial and conspiracy, to deflect, diminish, deny what is obviously right in front of New Yorkers' faces. And the same old familiar song is playing out in lots of other places, from Philadelphia to Chicago to Los Angeles to San Francisco, and the list goes on. Conspiracy. It's an amazing thing that she said. There's a story in the New York Post. I mean, if it weren't so sad, it's almost funny. New York City police say that a man was shot dead in New York City while bicycling on his way to go shoot someone else. So this was a guy on his way to a shooting who then got shot on his way to the shooting. And I guess just noticing this or pointing it out and adding that to the stats is a conspiracy as far as Kathy Hochul is concerned. A couple of recent polls in this race have it somewhere in the mid to low single digits. There was one poll that had Lee Zeldin slightly ahead. Another poll I saw yesterday has Hochul ahead by eight. But I think it's safe to say it is a single-digit race right now. And depending on turnout and other factors, I'm not sure if it's ranked a toss-up yet, but Hochul's sort of acting like a flailing person who finds herself in a toss-up race that she never imagined she would have. Compare that with the closing posture and attitude and confidence of Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida. His final message to voters is a minute-long TV commercial blanketing the state, and it is 100% positive. It's some uplifting piano music. America the Beautiful, and it's just photographs and images and video clips from across the state of him meeting with voters. And there's no word spoken at all for the vast majority of the spot until the very end. Here's what it sounds like. Cut 31.
5: Aren't you glad to live in the free state of Florida? We are going to carry this torch of freedom onward because our mission is very simple. We are keeping the state of Florida free. Thank you all.
4: God bless you.
0: And then his logo appears on the screen, and that's that. It is uplifting. It's inspiring. It's positive. There's not even a reference to DeSantis' opponent. He is trying to lock this thing down and win... A victory with a margin that would be historic in Florida, especially in modern American politics. As you know, I've been skeptical that this guy or anyone in that state could win by double digits. At this point, it looks probable that he will, not just based on the polling, but the early voting data is just abysmal for the Democrats. Biden was just down there for reasons that escape me. He was down in South Florida, and it seems likely that today or this week, Republicans might take the lead in the early vote in terms of registration turnout in Miami Dade County, which is just extraordinary if that in fact comes to pass. And DeSantis really wants to run up the score, and I think he might. Final hour of the Guy Benson show coming up. Josh Krasauer here to break everything down in detail. He's coming up next.
2: It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit longdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
0: It's the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show from New York City for the rest of the week. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6. That final hour is what we call and brand here the happy hour. And it is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Fantastic, refreshing, delicious. Check it out. TheLongDrink.com. See where they're sold near you. A lot more places around the country now. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. I'm a Fox News contributor. And in that capacity, tonight, I'm sitting in for my dear friend Kennedy, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, FBN, Fox Business Network, doing the hosting duties. So hope you will be able to tune in live or maybe set your DVR for that. Here at the show, you can follow us at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram on social media. You can also get all of our content at GuyBensonShow.com, including a free podcast every single day. With us now from our D.C. bureau and the studio where I am normally broadcasting from, it's Josh Krausauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, great to have you back.
6: Guy, great to be back on the show. Six days till the midterm elections. I
0: cannot wait for this thing to happen and be over. I can only talk about this so much longer. I have about six days left in me, actually, so it works out well. Josh, let's just talk about the overall big picture environment A mini flood, a small deluge of polls this morning, and I mentioned this in the last hour, with national polling finally catching up to sort of where you and I have been in a headspace, you know, for a number of weeks now. Some of these polls were still showing Democrats tied or maybe a little bit ahead in the generic ballot. And now you've got Quinnipiac, CNN, NPR, Marist, all saying, just kidding, the Republicans are up. You know, three to four points at this stage in the race, which, if accurate, would be a very big night ahead for the Republicans six days from now. What's the landscape looking like in your estimation six days out?
6: We're in a red wave watch. <laughs> this is like a possibility of a of a political tsunami hitting hitting ashore and, and sweeping the Democrats. From power, it doesn't mean it's going to happen, but a lot of these smoke signals that you're talking about, guy, from the the national polling showing Republicans pulling ahead on on the generic ballot, uh, a lot of movement in House races, the many many millions of dollars being spent in blue seats, some safely blue seats that Biden won by fifteen or more points, and all of a sudden you're seeing a lot of Democratic money pouring into to these deep blue seats, trying to pr- make sure they're they're saved in the midterms. And you know the the Senate is sort of the big wild card right now. I mean clearly you'd rather be the Republicans with the momentum, um, but uh, you've got some very close races in states like Georgia and Nevada, Pennsylvania. The momentum certainly seems to be with the Republicans, but they haven't quite pulled away yet, and that's what we're going to be watching closely on election night, some of these early returns on the East Coast in states like Pennsylvania. Is the Republican momentum going to hit the Senate as well and – allow Republicans to claim a clean sweep.
0: Yeah, let's uh, talk about Pennsylvania, because you've done some reporting, of course, about that state, but also in that state. We have seen over the last week since that debate last Tuesday night, a number of typically Republican-aligned pollsters finding Dr. Oz now ahead in that contest by two or three points. There was the New York Times poll that you wrote about that had... John Fetterman up five, but they said actually most of that was taken in the field before the debate happened. So that one was sort of a little bit questionable. We saw a new poll that I referenced in the last hour as well. Muhlenberg has that race exactly tied, 47-47, between Fetterman and Oz. But Monmouth out with new numbers today post-debate saying the debate didn't change anything. Fetterman's up by four in that race. I would point out, I went back and I looked, in 2020, the Monmouth poll in Pennsylvania predicted Joe Biden would win that state by seven. He won it by a point. So they were six points off two years ago. We'll see if their numbers are any better this time around. But that's a lot of different data points, Josh. Republican polls showing Oz in the lead, and then some other polls showing it exactly tied, and yet others basically saying Fetterman's kind of in cruise control here. It doesn't matter that he had the horrible debate. He's going to win. Based on what you're hearing, seeing, reading, you know, little whispers in your ear from sources and that sort of thing. What is your best assessment of Pennsylvania right now?
6: Number one, it's clear that Oz has the momentum. No matter what poll you're looking at, uh, the question is: Does the momentum extend to the lead? And look, if you if you look at the, some of the media polls, Fetterman is still ahead by by a narrow margin. The the sources I talked to, both on the Republican and the Democratic side. Look at this as a a very close race. They see Oz gaining momentum a little bit since the debate, certainly. Uh, Republicans I've talked to think Oz is ahead by a couple points uh, in their internal tracking. Democrats think this is a very winnable race still within the margin of error. But uh, this is going to be one of the big bellwethers on election night because Fetterman has struggled both because of his health, because of his positions on criminal justice issues that Republicans have attacked him on. Uh, fracking as well during the debate, but Oz has his vulnerabilities as well. Oz has never, you know, despite being endorsed by Donald Trump, Oz has never had a natural connection with the Republican base, and he still has his own, you know, favorability uh, issues and and authenticity challenges. So, you know, if this is a Republican wave year, and and we're seeing signs of that. Oz probably has a slight advantage in this campaign, but this is a race that's still very close, too close to call, one of the classic toss-ups on the Senate map.
0: You were one of the first people that I saw anywhere, in the national media at least, saying, yo, everyone, uh, let's not just move on from New Hampshire. A lot of people thought the cake was baked. Governor Sununu was going to win easily, but Maggie Hassan, the incumbent Democratic senator, would also win somewhat handily because the Republicans – Nominated someone who is a first time and very arguably flawed candidate. And yet, that race is looking uncomfortable for the Democrats right now. The Democrats poured a lot of money backing the Republican in his primary. They got their way. They got the guy they wanted to run against. So, mission's successful, at least in theory. But there have been a couple polls showing that kind of neck and neck at this point up in the Granite State. Where is that thing headed?
6: Well, I- If there's a wave – and one of the definitions of a wave is when candidates that are not your A-list candidates end up winning regardless. So this is a race where Republicans, at least one of the biggest super PACs for uh, the Republican Party, Mitch McConnell's Senate Leadership Fund, stopped spending money a few weeks ago in New Hampshire. And that was originally seen as a sign that Don Baldick might not be able to win. Uh, But there's been subsequent public polling showing that race also very close that – Voters in New Hampshire do not approve, or a lot of voters, a near majority of voters disapprove of Senator Hassan's performance. And again, if, if this is a red wave that hits New York, hits Oregon, hits a lot of blue states in between, then certainly a swing state like New Hampshire will not be immune to that political environment. So, you know, Balduck and I'd add Blake Masters to that, that category in Arizona, like if, if we're seeing a big Republican wave, that's how you get folks that are not the top candidates but ha- have enough juice to get across the finish line that would be relevant for Don Baldick in New Hampshire and and certainly of a- Blake Masters as well in Arizona.
0: Yeah I think Masters is a better candidate than Baldick uh, and I think that he's sort of hit a stride. Baldick has barely spent any money. I think the Democrats still have spent more money getting him out of the primary than he has on his own general election. TV ads at least. It's sort of wild to see but Maggie Hassan I read is just out with a brand new ad where she's really talking about how much she stands up to the Biden administration, stands up to her own party. Obviously, she senses vulnerability there. Her voting record is not one at all that stands up to Biden or the party. She is a rubber stamp virtually 100 percent of the time on everything that matters. But given the way the winds are blowing at the very end of the campaign, she's trying to tell New Hampshire voters, oh, no, I'm a very independent voice. Uh you know, her record does not reflect that. Do the Republicans have enough money to counter the story that she's trying to tell? I'm not sure.
6: Well, th- that that is what makes the decision by the Mitch McConnell-aligned uh, Senate Leadership Fund Super PAC so interesting because they they are spending in Ohio. They're spending on defense in North Carolina. They're, they're, they're spending in a lot of key states, but ultimately they pulled out of New Hampshire. They also didn't spend money in Arizona. So like well the NRSC
0: is is in New Hampshire right they came back in
6: they they are a, a smaller buy but 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 they are spending some money there're also some other outside republican groups that are spending money in both New Hampshire and and Arizona but again money message means more than money the political environment means more than money especially if, if this does turn out to be a republican wave year and in a swing state like New Hampshire If it's a good Republican year, it it would not be surprising to me to see someone like Don Balduck, despite his limitations, financially and otherwise, sweep across the finish line.
0: In Georgia, you have a governor's race that, for a while now, has looked basically over. Brian Kemp has led wire to wire. Stacey Abrams has never really gained any momentum or traction. There's been a lot of attention paid to that state, as usual, especially recently, just Georgia, Georgia, Georgia in American politics. But Kemp looks like he is on track to win in the ballpark of five to 10 points. That would be the margin. I wonder if you think it's sort of at the higher end of that range or at the lower end of that range. But I think a lot of Republicans are very invested in your answer to that question and what the outcome ultimately looks like, because maybe the size of Brian Kemp's victory could determine whether or not Herschel Walker wins the Senate race because that one's closer. You've got some polls showing Warnock, the Democrats, slightly ahead, other polls showing Walker, the Republican, slightly ahead. There's also the prospect of a runoff election in Georgia. If no one gets to 50 plus 1 percent, do you really think that this conventional wisdom is accurate, Josh, that the size of the Kemp coattails might decide or might ultimately – Dictate whether or not Herschel Walker is able to pull ahead and avoid a runoff versus more weeks like you know the like Groundhog Day the see the shadow. We've got more weeks of campaign and ads in the state of Georgia on the Senate side.
6: So, Guy, I, I actually might turn the question around a little bit. I, I think that the, the governor's race margin does matter, but it may be more because Stacey Abrams is hurting the the Democratic down ballot ticket. And you know Abrams was a big champion of, of Senator Warnock to run, and he's run a much better Senate race than she's run a governor's race. His favorability numbers in the Senate race are much better than hers, but she has she promised as part of her uh kind of heterodox campaign strategy to engage more democratic voters, turn out the base, turn out non voters that don't typically vote for Democrats uh, and we're not seeing a whole lot of signs that she's been able to accomplish. Her goal. In fact, if anything, we're seeing suburban swing voters that go with both parties turning against uh, the Democrats in the governor's race, supporting Governor Kemp, uh, who, by the way, he, he Governor Kemp has the, the 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 title of someone who challenged election denialism on both sides. He's taken mm-hmm. on Donald Trump uh, on the Republican side and earned a lot of moderate points for doing so. And he's taken on Stacey Abrams for you know she's she's. Still having trouble just unequivocally conceding that 2018 governor's race. Um, So, yeah, like I think Abrams is actually bringing down uh, Warnock. She's not helping him down ballot. And, uh, you know, there could be some negative coattails as as well. One thing Hmm. I'll I'll say about a runoff guy really quickly, um, I I do – if it does go to a runoff, if this is the race that decides the Senate majority and and neither candidate gets the 50 percent, that would give Herschel Walker a, a pretty clear advantage I would say in a runoff if though republicans have a really good night they get 51 52 seats and we still are going down to overtime in georgia you know i think senator warnock might actually have have a boost there because the stakes would not be quite as high and walker's own personal baggage it would would, would be more significant perhaps in that situation
0: yeah i mean i could see it cutting either way and we're getting ahead of ourselves you know if there is going to be a runoff in georgia if the republicans have already won the senate and it was a bad night for the democrats maybe their voters will be depressed and the Republican voters will be all excited, and that could benefit Walker either way. Your theory of the case also makes some sense to me. I guess we'll cross that bridge if we come to it. But some of the people I know in Georgia are wondering whether or not Herschel Walker can actually get over that 50-plus-1 mark next week as to avoid a runoff altogether. And I don't know. It's possible to me. It kind of depends, again, on the size of, of the wave that might be coming. And I know the Republicans would love to see that and have some finality to this, but I'm not sure I would bet that way just yet. Josh, I want to close by talking about New York. I'm doing the show here from the Big Apple. How real is the threat to Kathy Hochul? Could she actually lose or is she just sweating in a way that national Democrats never thought she would?
6: Guy, you know, I thought this was going to be a closer closer race than people thought, but I, I assume that Democrats still have some pretty fundamental advantages in such a deep blue state like New York. But when I, I saw Governor Co- Governor Hochul give an interview uh, to Al Sharpton on, on, on national television over the weekend, basically saying that like the crime problems are a figment of a lot of voters' imaginations and that there was data denialism going on, and it was remarkably tone deaf. And you know, it reminded me, it reminded me of when Terry McAuliffe was dismissive of mm. the, the parental frustrations in Virginia and, and literally handed in, in a blue state uh, Glenn Youngkin a, a huge, huge uh, advantage on, on an issue that was so important in that in that race. And I, I kind of wonder if Kathy Hochul is just giving the race away. I mean I, I think Democrats should be in much better shape in New York State even with uh, a tough, tough environment nationally. But she's doing everything possible to give Lee Zeldin a, a fighting chance of – being the first Republican in quite some time to win the governorship in New York.
0: Josh Krossauer is senior politics reporter for Axios, a Fox News radio political analyst. He'll be on the news channel for election coverage next Tuesday. I will as well. Looking forward to that, Josh. And we will probably check in one more time before Tuesday. But until then, I'll be watching you on Twitter. And I look forward to our next conversation.
6: Thanks, Guy. Looking forward to it.
0: The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour is back right after this very short break.
6: The Guy Benson Show. More
0: next. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I usually follow this stuff pretty closely, but this one caught me off guard. Israel had another election. (laughs) They had another election this week. It was their fifth election in less than four years because they kept failing to really get a governing coalition that would emerge from the electoral stalemate in that country. So they had another one, and the exit polling in Israel, which is quite accurate overall, is now projecting that former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is in position to come back to power with his right-wing, right-leaning coalition, apparently headed for a narrow majority victory among strong turnout from his allies. The exit polling suggested that he and his team, his coalition, would have a majority, narrowly, of 61 or 62 of the seats in the Knesset, which is their parliament. I've seen some other numbers indicating it could be a little bit higher, maybe as high as 65 seats. So Netanyahu, who was briefly cast out, back into the wilderness. There were allegations of criminality or malfeasance and that kind of thing. Well, it would appear and we'll know with some certainty in the next couple of days that he is on his way back into office as the next leader of Israel again. An extraordinary and dramatic turn of events over in Israel. And we'll keep an eye on that as results are finalized. The Guy Benson Show returns with more of The Happy Hour next.
2: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: It's The Happy Hour here on The Guy Benson Show from New York City. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. Earlier today, we caught up with Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, a Republican. He's been out on the campaign trail a lot are Republican candidates, especially in blue states. What is he seeing? What does he think is going to happen in six days? Here's part of that discussion with Chris Christie. Just as I opened the show today, the White House and the political team over in the Biden administration, they've decided that the best use of the president's time today is to have him give another speech about democracy, this time at Union Station, which has become this sort of festering example of economic decline and danger like physical danger because of crime they're sending him there and he's going to talk about democracy which is not really at the very top of most voters agenda what do you make of those political moves
8: well they're they're trying to hide him you know they he wants to go and do something i'm sure no campaign wants him because he's toxic so they send him to probably one of the most democratic large d pieces of real estate in America in the middle of the District of Columbia, the home to government, have them give a talk on something that is unlikely to either offend or move anyone, and then get him safely back into the White House where he can cause no further harm, at least at the moment.
0: Let's talk about a few races happening this cycle on either side of your state of New Jersey. Let's start in Pennsylvania. I see there's a poll out today that has John Fetterman ahead. A few other polls have it tied. A few other polls have Oz, Dr. Oz, now leading in that race for U.S. Senate. We'll talk more about that later this hour and also next hour with Josh Krasauer. But based on what you are seeing, hearing, et cetera, I know you've been in Pennsylvania as well. What is your sense of that race right now? We're six days out.
8: And I'm going back again to Pennsylvania Tonight guy, to campaign. Look, I think. I think Dr. Oz will ultimately win this race, and I think the reason that it is as close as it is is the horrific performance of the gubernatorial candidate at the top of the ticket. You know, you have a very close race for Senate in large part because you have Josh Shapiro, according to the polls, winning by anywhere from 12 to 15 points. So you're asking for a lot of crossover to happen between Josh Shapiro voters then over to Mahmoud Oz. I think he'll win it, but I think it will be very close, and and if there's a reason why it's so close, it's going to be because of the horrific performance of the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania.
0: I mean, speaking of horrific performances, John Fetterman in that debate, I'm still kind of surprised that his team let him go out there and do that, and it just like that combination of really just confirming concerns about his ability to do the job plus his absolutely Pathetic record and his radical positions on a whole host of issues. I'm amazed, I'm constantly astounded that that man has, you know, maybe a 50 50 coin flip chance of becoming a senator.
8: Well, look, you know, I, I found it fascinating when you heard the reviews of the debates, the debate the day after from unnamed uh, members of the Democratic uh, Party on Capitol Hill. What they kept saying was, Um, His his team should have never let him go out there. Their position, I guess, being that the only way John Fetterman can win is if he continues to hide his severe medical condition from the voters of Pennsylvania and deceives them, because if they could possibly see how he would perform, they would never vote for him. I mean, imagine the cynicism of that guy, that what you're urging members of his team to do is to actively hide his condition and deceive the people of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in order to win a race.
0: My full interview with Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, available online guybensonshow.com. The podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. guybensonshow.com, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. Well, a pop star Has tried to officially declare the beginning of Christmas season. She's wrong. We will respond forcefully in the homestretch next.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Homestretch, Wednesday edition from New York. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm guest hosting for Kennedy tonight on Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We will see you there. A fun lineup tonight. Lots of topics. So please tune in for that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. The podcast is free every day. Well, I saw this video going viral, and I will have to describe it for you. But Mariah Carey posted this, I believe, on TikTok. And it is her dressed head-to-toe in elaborate costume and makeup as a witch, a wicked witch. And she is, for some reason, pedaling a Peloton. She's on a Peloton bike. And there's spooky surroundings. She starts cackling like a witch. And then all of a sudden, there's a magical moment, and the season changes, and everything becomes Christmas. And you start to hear her sing. So I'm... Describing this to you so you can envision what we're about to play—the audio of Cut Thirty Two. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's time. <laughs> right,
0: stop it right there. We we can't. I cannot listen to that song yet. So uh, was this just something she did for fun? Was this an ad for Peloton? I have no idea what actually happened here, but people are sharing it all over the place. And here at the Guy Benson Show, we have a very strong position on this. With all due respect to Mariah and her acolytes and her fellow travelers on the preemptive Christmas celebration, we say no. We reject it. We are a Thanksgiving show here at the Guy Benson Show. I don't know how many times I have to say it. Thanksgiving is the all-American holiday. I would say right up there with July 4th in terms of Americana. But in terms of my favorite holiday, as devotees of the show might recall, my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. Because it has all these wonderful things like family and friends, gratitude. Faith, football, food, all of these great things. The meal itself is fantastic. It's a long weekend. It's in the fall. It's got the autumnal vibe, sweater weather. It's just the best. And it ushers in the Christmas and holiday season. And you know how much you have to look forward to. With Christmas looming and then New Year's, it's just the kickoff. To the most wonderful time of the year. And I refuse to allow anyone to play this game where we just skip from Halloween, which is, in my view, a second rate holiday that I barely recognize. We talk about it. I'll occasionally dress up. We give candy out as we've established. But I don't look forward to Halloween. I look forward to Thanksgiving. And this idea that, oh, the calendar turns to November and now it's Christmas? Absolutely not. Not as long as I have this microphone. It is the 24th of November, circled on my calendar a Thursday. We are in Thanksgiving season right now. Once Thanksgiving is over, then we can start having the Christmas conversation. I personally don't want to hear Christmas music in my house until December 1st. That's typically when I want decorations to go up. But I think you are in a safe zone after Thanksgiving. We have this argument every single year. I saw a friend of mine post on social media, he already put up his Christmas tree. He had it up before Halloween. He had it up like October 28th, and that is an abomination. I was like, have you moved in with Christine? It is a fake tree. That could be, is that an apartment in New Jersey? So the premise of Mariah, and I'll admit it's kind of a funny video, the premise of Mariah's video is just bunk. And then one more point on this, with all respect, the song that we had to cut off there, All I Want for Christmas is You, I have a firm stance on this as well. It is a very good pop Christmas song. Arguably... One of the greatest of all time. Is it disgustingly overplayed? It charts, I think, every year in November and December. It is absolutely overplayed. It's too much. I would like to hear All I Want for Christmas is You. I would say a grand total of maybe half a dozen times between December 1st and December 25th. That would make me happy and enjoy the song. The problem is you hear all or some of it dozens of times. It's ubiquitous. It's unavoidable. But what's fun is Mariah Carey clearly is in on the joke. This is a self-aware thing. Like there's all these memes out there of her sort of revealing herself just after Halloween. Like, here I am. I'm back. Here comes the song. And people who are obsessed with the song, I guess just go for it. They love it. I am not anti, right? I'm not a hater of the song. I like it. I just can't handle it until December. And then let's just, let's just rein it in, scale it back a little bit because it becomes an earworm and it's just overwhelming. But I know I'm like, I'm arguing against almost the laws of nature, right? It's just like people are going to do what they're going to do. And that song is going to be everywhere. And they're going to be putting up their Christmas trees, in early November, and that's their choice. It's a free country. But here on this show, we say no. Producer Christine was trying to get us to bump in to this segment with the Mariah Carey song or with another Christmas song. And that got a hard veto from yours truly the host, The Talent. Christine tried. Fortunately, I'm up here in New York, so I could see her trying to bully Dan, and Dan stood up to the bully. Dan stood up to the bully, as he should. Christine, you have just been like, you look like a ticking time bomb over there.
1: Well, we all don't agree with your stance on Christmas and when it should start to be celebrated, because I just want to let you know something. I've already started listening to Christmas music. Megan and I may have been listening to Christmas music on the way to school today. We are very excited.
0: Christine, it's like in the 60s. It's early November. It's not even Election Day yet.
1: Guy, I've been celebrating fall since August. It's time to move on.
0: It is not time to move on. I feel like we have this exact conversation multiple times every year. And yet, we will continue to do so. Because I am correct and you, with all due respect, Christine, are part of the problem. You're part of the problem that we're fighting against. We have part of this cultural cancer inside the show. So I'm trying to do some, like, I don't know.
1: I'm going to get my Christmas tree this Sunday.
0: This weekend? Yeah. Wait, why do you need to get a Christmas tree? I thought you have...
1: It's the one we had fit our home, like our house. It was, like, wide, but uh, I need a smaller, thinner. I found one at Pottery Barn that's really nice. Christmas trees are expensive.
0: Yeah, so are real ones.
1: Oh, really? But at I've least never they look
0: one. and smell better.
1: Why? It's too early to buy a real
0: one. I know. That's almost like God telling you something. Isn't it? Like, oh, it won't survive all the way to Christmas. That's the cue. Get it when it is natural. As... It is intended to be, not November, whatever it's going to be, 9th, 10th?
1: Well, I will say. I No, even earlier. I'm decorating the 6th. What? It's, it's not a problem. I'm going to decorate this weekend because I'm not hosting Thanksgiving. Now, if I was hosting Thanksgiving, I probably wouldn't put all of the decorations up, but the tree would be up. I love that when my, my company comes and then they can see the tree because they're probably not going to be at my house for Christmas.
0: No, there should not be Christmas decorations visible at Thanksgiving dinner. That is just an affront to that holiday itself. You should maybe break out the stuff the next day, that Friday if you want to, Black Friday or that following weekend. You're just not going to convince me on this. I mean, if you
7: have Christmas stuff up already, you might as well keep them up all year round because it's way too early. And you might as well just have it all year round and just leave it there.
1: I would love it. I would love, I've told you this before, my dream, I have two dreams in this world. One, we all know, the dark bar. Number two <laughs> is to keep the Christmas tree up year-round and just decorate per holiday. But my husband said no.
0: No, he's, I mean, once again, right about that. I think the problem with the extended celebration is that it takes away from the specialness. It takes away from the special. Concentrated joy of the Christmas season, Correct. and you dilute it, you water it down. The more you spread it out,
1: no, no, we're adding to the celebration. We are no. expanding. No,
0: the celebration. It's less meaningful, and it's especially less meaningful when it stamps and stomps all over another equally important holiday in Thanksgiving.
1: Megan and I watched a Christmas movie last night.
0: Yeah, well, obviously, you're forcing her to do this. Megan knows better. Megan, I think, generally has a pretty good head on her shoulders. You're the one controlling the remote. You're the one It's like, all right, Megan, it's a mommy-daughter time. I did. I'm like, do you
1: want to do a mommy-daughter movie tonight? And Mm -hmm. she's like, yeah. I'm like, let's do Christmas. And then I said, do you want to work on your Christmas list while we're watching it? And she goes, wait, when does Sweetie the Elf come? I said, Thanksgiving night. She goes, I'll do it after that.
0: See, point made. Megan for the win again feel like Megan and Bobby are the people keeping that household from completely going I mean, off the rails
1: into pure insanity. Well, I have one last question. Uh-huh. When can you and I start talking about our Christmas party? Do we have to wait till after Thanksgiving?
0: Well, I think something that we've already decided is if we're going to call it our Christmas party, I'm going to invoice you for a large portion of the cost of the party. Then it can be ours.
1: So that could be a problem. I mean— I know I'm the talent here, too, mm. as well, but I don't get paid as much as the other talent. So
0: You're the co-talent here. Of course I am. It's the Guy Benson Show, asterisk. Cookies mine, and the asterisk is actually a cookie. Just if you look carefully, it's a cookie.
1: Or a it's hot a dog. Cho-
0: It's a chocolate chip asterisk. Uh, so, yeah, I'll send you the invoice. I'll send some uh, some collectors, some debt collectors, to make sure that I get paid. And, you know... If not, that's fine. Good luck to your kneecaps. But if not, you know, it will be my party, our party, as in Adam and my party. But if you want to write that check, then it can become our, like the royal Our party. Deal. All right. It's a binding social contract that has now been officially confirmed and witnessed by many on national radio. So thank you, Christine, for that very generous you know, I, you know, I'll i give you a Merry Christmas for that. Your very generous Christmas gift, paying for at least half, I think I heard you say, at no, least half no. of our party.
1: No, I can't. I, I can't afford that. No. I think you can. I will bring stuff. That will be my, nope. I'll, bring de- I'll bring decorations, no. I will bring some food, no, I'll no, bring no. some vodka shots.
0: No, no, you are going to, as we've agreed, write the check and then all the aesthetics will be chosen and executed by people of taste. Namely, not you. We're out of time. I got to go get ready for Kennedy coming up in just over an hour, 7 p.m. Eastern time on Fox Business Network, sitting in for the great lady. Hope to see you there. Back here tomorrow from New York. I'm on the outnumbered couch tomorrow. It's a very busy day. It's a very busy week on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic evening.